Please open a Bible to Exodus chapter 21. We're going to begin at Exodus 21 verse 12 and we'll be reading all the way through Exodus 22 verse 15. If you're using the church Bibles today, that will be found on page 73. And I'm going to encourage you to keep your Bible open during the whole sermon. I think I will touch on almost every law that is in this section we're going to read, but I'm not going to read every law. So if you're able to glance up and down where I'm talking about, that'll be helpful today. At first, this passage that we're about to read appears to be a jumble of archaic laws tossed together with no discernible order. But as I read in a moment, look out for two things. First, the laws come in groupings. There's a number of little triplets where three laws are stuck together or various runs of five, like the five laws on goring oxen or five laws laws concerning theft. But then second, these individual groupings reveal a larger movement. Roughly what we're going to see is that the laws we're reading move from humans killing another human human hurting another human. Uh, I got to double check here. Uh, What to do when an animal injures a human, what to do when a human injures an animal, what to do when animals injure each other, and then dealing with other kinds of theft and property. So there is a sort of discernible movement and scale of values. So I encourage you to listen for these groupings and this larger movement as I read Exodus 21, 15 through 22, 15. No, 21, 12 through 22, 15. Sorry. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll note that we begin in the middle of a section on the top of page 73. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time, and he shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. But if there is harm, you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned but not kept in, 
and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to the same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast they shall also share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has not been kept in, uh, has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it and sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox or a donkey or a sheep or a cloak or for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. This is God's word. Again, I do encourage you to keep your Bible open, and I'm not going to be able to comment in detail on every single one of these. So if you have a question about you know, what your ox did and whether you're liable or not, you can catch me during coffee time and we can try and clear that out. When we began looking at these specific laws two weeks ago, I suggested three guidelines. The Old Testament law isn't discarded by the New Testament. The Old Testament law isn't always God's highest ideal. 
And the Old Testament law isn't separable from the historical particularity of Israel's life. With those guidelines in mind, reflecting on these laws, we see at least four basic values behind what we've just read. Life, intentions, responsibility, and reconciliation. And so I want us to see four principles in this passage. God values life. God considers intentions. God teaches responsibility. And God desires reconciliation. The first and central principle behind all of these rules is this. God values life. God values life. So the first rule in 21.12, whoever strikes a person so that they die shall be put to death. God gives life and values life. And so we don't have the right to take away life. This and a number of these following rules develop the basic principle that was laid down in Genesis chapter 9. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. That basic principle in Genesis 9 teaches the sanctity of all human life. It is valuable. But just as importantly, it grounds the sanctity of life in a fundamental truth about the nature of creation. Humans are made in God's image and therefore are all valuable, every single human. And so anytime a human attacks another human or kills another human, they are really attacking the God whose image they bear. The value of human life seems so obvious to us 3,000 years on, but it's hard to overstate how revolutionary this principle was in its own day 3,000 years ago on Mount Sinai. That every human life, regardless of class, or age, or gender is of inestimable value. And that value isn't just a bald assertion or the result of some hypothetical social contract. It is grounded in the very nature of things, the way God has created humans to bear his image. And so these Exodus rules demonstrate that God values all life. In other ancient law codes, like the Code of Hammurabi from about two or three hundred years before the laws of Exodus, the penalty for murder depends on who you killed. If you murdered a member of the royalty or gentry, it was a capital crime. But if you murdered someone of a lower class or a slave, the penalty was merely a fine. In effect, Hammurabi codifies a scale of value of human lives. Royalty and gentry are worth more. Free men, lower class, and slaves are worth less. And then on the flip side, the Code of Hammurabi makes theft a capital crime in many cases. If you steal from the royalty or gentry, you should be put to death for it. But not so in Israel. We see that God values all life as the basic rule on murder makes clear, and then is extended to various other groups. So 21.20 makes it clear that the life of a servant or slave is just as valuable as that of a master. If a man kills his slave, the slave should be avenged. 
His life has worth. 21-22 describes what seems to be a bit of a strange scenario. One might wonder how often this happened, that two men got up to a fight and accidentally injured a pregnant woman in the process. And a number of the details aren't totally clear on what's going on here, but what is clear is the basic point, that God values even the most vulnerable lives, a pregnant woman and her yet unborn child. They both, the woman and the unborn child, equally bear God's image and the dignity that comes with it and therefore must be protected. Interestingly, this is the only case in the law where an accidental death becomes a capital offense. It's like God's underlining the point here that the lives of the vulnerable need to be protected. Guys, if you get into a fight, you better darn well make sure there's no pregnant women around you because if you injure them, you could end up being put to death even if you didn't mean to hurt them. It's in connection with this rule, protecting the lives of the most vulnerable, that we get this famous line, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The point here is not that punishment should be cruel or vindictive, but rather that punishment should always be proportional no more and no less than what fits the crime. And the following rules in 21, 26 to 27, when a man injures the eye or tooth of his slave, makes clear the master doesn't get his own eye knocked out or his own teeth knocked out, but rather sets the slave free. It makes clear that this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, is a vivid poetic image for the principle of proportionality, but it doesn't intend that eyes are literally gouged out teeth literally knocked off, out, hands chopped off. The rules in the oxen, we see the similar point. If an ox gores to death a man or a woman or a child or a slave, the ox should be stoned to death and its meat should not be eaten. Human life is valuable and if an ox kills that person, it should be destroyed so it doesn't kill another person. And it would be, there'd be something perverse about eating the meat of an ox that killed your neighbor. And so you're kind of celebrating eating some meat. Rather, it should be, uh, the meat should be destroyed. It's also clear from these laws that God values life more than property or possessions. Theft in the Old Testament is never a capital crime because even a criminal's life is valuable in God's sight. The rules in 22 verses 2 and 3 consistently apply the principle that God values life. If in the middle of the night someone breaks into your house and in the darkness you're unsure, you know, your family's asleep, they're vulnerable, you're unsure what's going on, you're unsure if they're armed, you're unsure what their intentions are. If in that context you strike the person who broke in and they end up dying, there's no blood guilt. But if it's broad daylight and you can see they're unarmed, you can see they're just trying to rob a thing and you still kill that person, you are guilty for that death because people fundamentally matter more than things. Lives are fundamentally more valuable than possessions. We need to cultivate this value in our own lives. Certainly, we should value our neighbor's life and not seek to take it or diminish it. But this question of do we value people more than things comes up in everyday situations as well. Okay, a number of us are in the situation of having some teen drivers at home. And when your teen wrecks your car, you have a question. Do I value my teen more or my car more? And where you value determines how you're going to react. When your wife uses the good kitchen knife to cut branches off the Christmas tree, 
Okay, how you respond ultimately comes down to do you value the person more or the thing more? How we spend our time shows what we value. Is our time focused on our careers and accumulating things and enjoying our things? Or is our time focused on people? A second principle we see in these rules is that God considers intentions. God considers our intentions. Again, we see this principle introduced right away in that opening triplet of rules. 2.12 condemns murder, but then 2.13 and 14 immediately clarify that God considers our intentions. 21.13 says, If he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hands, then I will appoint to you a place to which you may flee. It's alluding ahead to those cities of refuge that will be appointed. It's not entirely clear what's in mind here. Is this saying if it's a crime of passion or an accident or manslaughter? And perhaps it's, it's, it's purposefully open-ended to give judges some discretion on the basis of the individual cases. But what is clear is the contrast in 2114. If a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, then he shall surely be put to death, even if he tries to flee to the tabernacle and the altar. The point being made here is that God considers our intentions. There is a real distinction between premeditated murder that someone sets out to kill another person and a death that happens when two men are fighting or a workplace accident. That intentions matter is also made clear in these rules uh, in 21.20 to 21. This is where uh, a master is striking his slave. Admittedly, this is one of the most disturbing sections of the law. But remember, this isn't God's highest ideal. He's not saying you should go beat your slave within an inch of his life. Rather, God is entering into messy situations and stopping bad things from getting worse. He recognizes that at times masters do beat their slaves, and yet he's valuing the slave's life. And in that context, oh, and then also in 21, 26, and 27, it says that if a master causes permanent injury to his servant, such as even knocking out a tooth, the servant immediately shall go free. But the point in 21, 20 to 21 uh, that's a bit of a mouthful, but it's, it's distinguishing the master's intention. If he beats his slave to death, the master should be put to death for it. If he strikes his slave and the slave lives for a period of time, but then eventually dies of complications, it can't be proved that the master was trying to kill his slave. And so the master is not put to death for that. To be clear, both are bad, but God considers the intentions and makes a distinction between the two punishments. Uh, likewise, uh, well, we'll just keep uh, skipping down. Um, uh, this is probably the best place talking about intentions to address this triplet of rules in verses 15 through 17. They're outliers uh, that they don't quite fit the rest of the pattern, but they're probably put at the very beginning of the passage to identify some additional capital offenses besides murder. It's a triplet. There's a rule about honoring parents, a rule about kidnapped slavery, and then a rule about honoring parents. The rule about stealing another person and selling them into slavery is straightforward enough. Kidnapping someone and selling them is equivalent to robbing them of their life. And so it's treated basically as a form of murder. And that in itself, if that law was applied consistently, would have condemned everything that happened in the North American slave trade. The, the, the kidnapping, the possessing, the selling, all of it. Uh, so what 
the Old Testament allows for is not the situation that happened in our own history, just to be clear there. But then what do we make of these two rules on honoring our parents? They seem quite extreme. In both cases, though, intention plays a role. When it says a child strikes his father or mother, it's the same exact verb used in verse 12 that you would strike a person and it kills them. The rule isn't saying if a young child loses their temper and slaps their mother that you put them to death. That's not at all what the law is saying here. Rather, it's saying if a a teen or an adult child attacks their parents with the intention of killing them, even if the parent eventually recovers, that child should be put to death. So one commentator says the sense of what's going on here is assault, you assault someone and leave them for dead. And so it's saying because of the importance of the child-parent relationship, in that context, even attempted murder is a death penalty offense, even if they don't succeed. Likewise, cursing his father and mother is not just saying any of us who have ever called our parents a rude name uh, are put to death, but rather cursing a father and mother is utterly rejecting them and refusing to support them in old age. It's turning your parents out on the street, foreclosing their home, leaving them for dead. And again, it's saying this, this overarching rejection of parents uh, is, is considered a capital offense, which seems striking to us, but it shows what a strong value God puts on flourishing families. Well, if God considers intentions, we need to learn to do the same. We need to consider other people's intentions when they harm or offend us. We need to ask, what did they actually intend by those words? What were they trying to do with that action? Is there a charitable way to interpret what they've done? I mean, this is a basic principle we teach children, young children, don't we? It's if, if their sibling bonks them on accident, you don't respond in the same way as if they intentionally, uh, you know, one sibling punches another sibling intentionally. Uh, the intentions matter. But we also need to learn to consider our own intentions. And we need to admit that sometimes they're not even totally clear to us. The God who considers intentions, though, knows us more intimately than we even know ourselves. Somewhere C.S. Lewis talks about um, uh, a man who acts what from the outside appears incredibly brave, uh, bravely in war may not have a normal sense of fear. And so for him, it may be no big thing to charge up a hill against a tank platoon or something like that. Uh, but then he says, there might be someone who has such a serious debilitating phobia that picking up a house cat that's wandered into their house and chucking it out, like that could be actually a more brave thing because God knows what's going on in our hearts. He knows our intentions. He understands our inner condition. Sometimes that's a great relief. We've done something from the outside that appears horrible, and yet God knows that our intentions were far from it. But other times, it should be driving us to confession. God knows us, and he knows there's times when our hearts were set on murder, even if we never carried it out. God considers intentions. A third principle uh, is that kind of balances considering intentions, and it's this, that God teaches responsibility. God teaches responsibility. We see this principle in 21, 18 to 19. If two men quarrel and one strikes another with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then he who struck him is in the clear, but he should pay for his lost time and his medical care. Notice the rule doesn't make a distinction on who started the fight or who was more wrong. Rather, it simply says, 
If you injure someone in a way that they are bedridden, you ought to take responsibility for their care. The same principle uh, is applied in these various rules concerning oxen. Oxen were often used in Israel for pulling and for plowing, and so they're the sort of ancient equivalent to a tractor or a car. Uh, we've already seen that if an ox gores and kills someone, it should be destroyed. But then in 21:29, we're taught that if an ox is known to gore, if it's maybe injured someone in the past but not fatally, uh, and the owner doesn't keep it under control, doesn't keep it tied up, isn't monitoring it, and that ox then goes and kills someone, the owner deserves to die as well. He has failed to take responsibility for his ox. Uh, there's a very important note, though, in 2130. It clarifies that although the owner deserves to die, a judge can impose a ransom for his life, and he shall give redemption of his life for uh, the redemption of his life, whatever was imposed on him. And that sort of uh, asterisk seems to apply to a lot of the death penalty offenses. Is It's saying what you deserve is death. This is the maximum penalty for what you've done. But if there is extenuating circumstances, a judge can say, in this circumstance, here is the fine. And we can assume in most cases where an ox gored or something like that, that's what would happen is the judge would impose a fine. And yet the first principle is you deserve death because you didn't take responsibility and caused the death of someone else. And we can assume that in the most egregious cases of careless disregard for other people's safety, that perhaps the death penalty might have been applied. Uh, likewise, if your ox gores someone else's ox, it's known to be a violent ox, then you have to take responsibility for that. The same basic lesson that God teaches responsibility features in a number of these property laws. 22.5 says, if your flock or your herd strays into the neighbor's field and destroys their crops, or their vineyard, you need to take responsibility and make amends from the very best of your own crops. 22.6, if you start a bonfire in your backyard and it catches in the thorns that would have been the fence between your yard and the neighbor's yard and it burns up their crop, you have to take responsibility. It wasn't your intention that the fire burn into your neighbor's field, and yet that's what happened. The rules in 22, 10 through 15, the kind of end of this section, get a bit complicated, but basically they're just trying to teach responsibility and who takes responsibility in different circumstances. So if, if someone asks you to watch over their animals and while you're watching over them, they're injured or die or driven off or eaten by a wild animal, you don't have to make restitution. But if they're stolen from you while you're supposed to be watching over them, you do take responsibility because presumably you should have prevented the theft. And then that triplet of laws in the very end of 22, 14, and 15, it's a different scenario. It's more borrowing or renting your neighbor's ox or bull. Uh, in modern, ter modern terms, let's say a tractor. So verse 14 says, if I borrow Tom's tractor and while I'm using it, uh, it breaks down, I should pay to have it repaired. But if Tom says, I'm going to help you on your property for, for free, I'm helping you, and Tom's driving the tractor and he's the one who wrecks it, then it's Tom's responsibility to pay it. And then the third is, if you rent out the tractor, you're paying to use the tractor, you've already paid money for it. And so if it breaks down after you've rented it, that's the owner's responsibility. So again, it's all just trying to sort out who takes responsibility, but the basic lesson is take responsibility. Uh, and that's what God's trying to drive home. And it's a lesson for us again. Uh, it seems like a lot of our legal system oftentimes is focused on trying to avoid responsibility for what we all see straightforwardly someone should take responsibility for. And so we should be actively trying to take responsibility, 
not evading it. We should be cultivating responsibility. Finally, we see in these rules that God desires reconciliation. God desires reconciliation. You may have noticed that something is missing from all these laws that we would expect given our modern legal system. In ancient Israel, there's no jail or prison. No one is ever sent to prison for five or ten years. The cities of refuge that are alluded to function a little bit like a prison, but in most cases, thieves and those who injure someone else in a fight are not sent to prison, nor is someone whose ox gores someone else to death. Rather, they are instructed to make reconciliation. The man who injures his neighbor in a fight must pay for his lost time and medical cost. Someone who injures a pregnant woman or her baby must pay a fine which the husband proposes and a judge imposes. The owner of an ox who gores someone to death must pay a ransom for the redemption of his own life. The thief who steals must pay back five head of cattle for an ox, four sheep for a stolen sheep if they've been sold or eaten, and pay back double if he can return the original. Surely the steep restitution demanded of a thief is intended to deter potential thieves. Okay, you know, that's a nice looking ox, but if I take it and get caught, I'm going to owe back five, so I better not take it. Yes, it is trying to deter, but beyond that, it's, there's more going on than that. Imprisoning a thief or someone who has caused serious injury doesn't do anything for the person who was robbed or who was injured, but paying restitution repairs the relationship between the one who has done wrong and the one who has been wronged, and God desires reconciliation that relationships are repaired, that communities are reconciled. Sometimes we talk about a person who's gone to prison as having paid their debt to society. And in a sense, that may be true that justice has been satisfied. But what they don't do is pay back a debt to the person that they originally wronged. And so there's oftentimes still a, a, a grudge, hard feelings between those people, even if someone has been sent to prison. But what God desires is reconciliation. Or to put it another way around, God's justice is not just about retribution or punishment for wrong. That's part of it. But God's justice goes beyond this to restoring peace in the fullest biblical sense of flourishing. Shalom. Even if someone can't pay the fine or make restitution, they don't go to prison but enter indentured servitude where they still are a member of the community working for a maximum of six years to pay off their debt. Again, this is an important principle that we need to learn, is that we too should seek reconciliation when we have broken relationships. When our words or actions have hurt someone else, we ought to make reconciliation, restitution. The laws tell us here it could oftentimes be expensive or painful, And yet God desires a world with flourishing communities marked by flourishing relationships. And that means reconciliation and restitution. Kind of a bug just dive bombed me there. Sorry about that. Uh, Exodus shows us that repairing relationships is often costly. But the very cost shows us how important this is to God. How highly God values reconciliation. Now as we conclude you may have noticed that if we put these four principles together, it doesn't just show how God expects a kingdom of priests to live, but it actually shows us the shape of God's own work in the world. God values life, and so he doesn't leave a broken world to cycles of violence and revenge and violence. 
Instead, he calls a people to himself and he condescends to them and he enters the messiness of their lives and he gives them rules to stop bad things from getting worse and to start pushing them towards the kind of flourishing he desires. But God also considers our intentions. In verse eight, uh, sorry, Genesis 8, after the flood, God says, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So am I going to flood them again? No, seeing that their intentions are evil, I will never again curse the ground because of man. God says, because humans' intentions are evil, therefore they need my grace and mercy. And so God himself takes responsibility for our brokenness. He takes it upon himself to make reconciliation, to bring about flourishing. God values life, and so God himself condescends, and he comes into the world as the man Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ takes responsibility for all of humanity's sin and brokenness and failure and gives himself to work reconciliation between us and God and to give us the resources to have reconciliation with our neighbors. That these values God is teaching Israel, that he values life, that he considers intentions, that he wants us to take responsibility, and that he values reconciliation. It's not just things he's telling us to do. He's saying, this is how I act. This is what I do for you. Let us pray together. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you don't just leave us in our brokenness, but you come to us. You give us rules and directions for how to live in a flourishing world. Lord, we ask that these principles we would take on board, that they would shape our own lives, that we too would value life, that we would consider our intentions and others' intentions, that we would take responsibility even for unintended consequences of our actions, and that we would be people who seek reconciliation with our brothers and sisters. But even more fundamentally, Lord, we thank you that you took the responsibility upon yourself to make right our brokenness, that you entered the world as the man, Jesus Christ, that you gave your own life, your own son, to make restitution so that there might be reconciliation. And so, Lord, we ask this day that we might be reconciled to you again and that we might rejoice and flourish in the context of that relationship. Amen. Let us respond to God's word singing.